So for the, the space applications, um, one of the interesting thing about space applications is that um, is that for for most space applications, especially near term ones, um, we don't really have to deal with um, uh, anywhere near the amount of gravity that we have to deal with on the Earth's surface. Um, and so, uh, the the reason why that's interesting is that a lot of on Earth engineering um, deals with a governing constraint that is connected to gravity. Um, uh, and so space applications, um, because of that, um, structures in space just look different. Um, and the way they look different is they're much lighter. Um, and so if you're, uh, so this is where lightweight materials um, and these questions of um, how stiff something can be for how light it is and um, uh, really what the dynamic modes are um, uh, uh, become so critical. Because for things that are floating out in space, the biggest structural questions are often um, often have to do with your ability to control it. Um, so if you're a telescope, you need to be able to, to move that telescope to look at the thing you want, and it needs to stay there for long enough for you to, for you to take it in. Um, and you want to be able to do that without spending too much fuel um, or too much energy in general. Um, uh, uh, and so that's exactly a situation where the mass matters, um, uh, a, a great deal, um, to the problem. And, and so your solutions end up being as light as we can possibly make them. Uh, and so these approaches, even including a mechanical metamaterial approach to making ultralight systems, are, are very interesting in that to me. And, and there we're talking about structures where, um, and this is where some of the challenge in making space systems is, these are structures that are so lightweight, you can't even test them on the ground because they would crush themselves. to go for the, um, what you do at the code structure um, lab. Maybe before going to that, things of both cost about self robotics, how, how do you see material and structure? When we speak about intelligence to to get an inspiration, like for example, things that seem about uh, the aerospace and, and also outer space, uh, when you see the intelligence and getting inspiration and deploying it in structures and material, how do you see the um, the relationship with the material and the structure? Which one is easier to, uh, yeah, to innovate and doing career, uh, yeah, creative designs? Or can you tell me about this nature of the interplay between the material and the structure to achieve the desired goal, like lightweight, whatever the the, the criteria you're looking for in the design? In terms of my area of work. Um, one of the things that we focus on in, in my group uh, is 
uh, what we call metamaterials. Um, and uh, particularly mechanical metamaterials, um, and particularly within that, engineered or architected cellular solids, um, periodic lattice materials. And so what that all means um, is, is that, or what all that refers to, is the fact that um, there are structures that we can design uh, that can be treated as materials. Um, and um, so a basic example of this is uh, that everyone should be familiar with are, are things like wood or uh, engineered foams, like the foam that would that a bicycle helmet might be made out of, for instance. Um, and so these things, if you if you zoom in on them, um, they're made up of of uh, a lot of little structures. We'll call them microstructures. Um, you could say that they're made up of of, of cells. Um, uh, and the geometry of those cells defines a very a, a very specific relationship between the mechanical behavior of the material that those cells are made out of and the mechanical behavior of the bulk cellular material. So a whole piece of wood relative to the mechanical properties of the lignin and cellulose that the individual cells are made out of. Now between you know, that, that lignin and cellulose is distributed in space in a way where there's actually quite a lot of air um, uh, integrated into this. And you see this with a lot of, a lot of natural um, materials, um, that they are cellular, uh, sometimes periodic, um, sometimes not even particularly stochastic. Um, you can see some very highly ordered versions of it. Now, there was a lot of expertise built uh, around understanding um, how the natural materials behaved um, and uh, a, a lot of theory that was useful for then engineering things like the foams that you re we see in everyday life um, uh, for safety and for packaging. Um, more recently, um, researchers have been looking at what if we could have very precise control over the geometry and be able to do things that the natural processes of making cellular materials don't really typically achieve in terms of the geometries of, of the microstructures within that. Um, and what that enables us to do um, is to, to do what is, is commonly called um, just designing our way around or engineering our way around material property space. Um, and so we can then take any material we want um, and have a target for how it behaves and design the geometry of the metamaterial um, in order to, to reach that behavior with as little mass or mass density as possible. Um, and, or we can go in the other direction and we could have an application where we know we need to hit a particular um, mechanical set of mechanical properties. Um, and we can just sort of select from 
a large base of materials that we would like to use um and we can we can build a thing um a component for instance that has exactly the stiffness that we want and exactly the weight that we want out of any one of those materials um that are are strong and light enough as a solid material um to be able to reach that that target um and and be able to um get what is very close to ideal performance for that not that material so there's been a lot of work there's always been work on um trying to in engineering to try and design components like a piece of an airplane um to be as light as possible to remove as much material that's not needed um and the metamaterials approach allows you to do that um we think uh, even better um, than it has been done in the past. Um, and to be able to do new things uh, with less expensive materials um, and uh, to be able to, to, to get certain kinds of things to perform even better. And so that last thing about getting better performance, uh, I think, is, is really important um, uh, because... The truth is that there are aircraft, there are wooden aircraft that still hold flight records. And that's not because the lignin and cellulose that the wood is made out of is particularly um, good compared to modern day engineering materials. Um, it's because you can reach a stiffness per weight at a very low weight that's very hard to manufacture in um with current technology um and there are so many applications for which you could say that the weight matters more than the stiffness for stiffness covered applications um because it's the dynamics that um are the real limit um for your performance and the way that just first order the way that your um, first natural mode scales with your mass density versus your stiffness um, is it's 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 quadratic so um, that's why foam aircraft uh, like model aircraft made out of foam still fly well even though foam is is not very good in terms of its specific stiffness um, it's starting with a material that the plastics um, that are actually quite poor. Um, and you could never get the same performance out of an aircraft that is made out of the solid plastic that the foam is made out of that you can make an aircraft that flies well. Um, so it's one of these rare areas where you can get an engineering win because the theoretical limit of how good you can do is linear, but the performance is quadratic. And so there's there's a number of you can take this in a number of different directions. The performance is quadratic for engineering elements like columns and beams. Um, it can be um, it can be even worse um, for for uh, plates and shells, for instance, um, or it can be a little bit better. But in any case, there's this margin that you can work with um, and get this engineering win um, 
by being able to create these new metamaterials um, uh, that are sort of periodic cellular structures. And so we've, you know, there's, there's, there had been a bunch of work in that that has, had hit a wall of um, manufacturability. When they first figured out how, um, figured out a good way to think about and to model um, natural cellular materials, there was naturally a lot of interest in, in these engineered, architected cellular material, but they couldn't figure out a good way to make them. Um, uh, there was a lot of investment and some companies built around trying to make these, um, uh, and um, particularly out of like aluminum and titanium, and um, uh, they were they they were not very successful. Decades went by, and now with um, the with the common 3D printing abilities um, and new 3D printing abilities, um, there's been a lot of extra interest, a lot of new interest, um, particularly in academia around um, uh, trying to find new geometries um, and understanding how they behave um, because it's becoming easier. Um, what the, One of the big sort of breakthroughs that we made in my group um, were showing that you could just assemble these things so um, you could do better than 3D printing. Um, the good thing about 3D printing is you could actually achieve these kinds of geometries that you could not really make any other way. Um, we showed that the quality that you can get by, um, by injection molding them um, Actually, it doesn't matter that they're injection molded. The quality you can get by focusing on making um, the individual cells or units um, as the best you can um, and and then assembling them um, can can get you into this um, theoretical best case regime, this linear specific stiffness um, regime and maintaining maintaining your strengths as well. Um, your, your your ideal regime strength scaling. Um, uh, which is to say that the cost that you pay to to make the connections as you're assembling them is less than the cost that you pay when you're 3D printing. Um, in um inconsistency. Um. Uh, that then affects your overall behavior um, of the material. So, one of the one of the things that comes out of that is that um, uh, it turns out that if if you want to make large things, um, obviously out of metamaterials, you need a way of making a lot of the cells that these metamaterials are composed of. And um, we found that the, the cheapest way to make the highest quality ones is just by injection molding cells. And that's been wildly successful because then that gives you something where um, the manufacturing quality is extremely high and um, the cost is extremely low. Um, and so this is the self-robotics podcast, right? So, oh. so um, the... 
uh, you can stop me if I'm jumping ahead um, mm -hmm. by getting into um, one of the first things we did with this. Um, so I mentioned that we can we can move our way, design or engineer our way around material property space. And so you have to ask then, well, for soft materials, um, what does that mean? And, and so one of the things that means is that you could make a soft metamaterial out of titanium or carbon fiber uh, or ceramic um, by choosing the right geometry. Um, and the benefit that you get out of that will be the specific stiffness of those materials, um, but at an extremely low density. Um, and, and what you would get is the, the absolute stiffness of things like elastomers um, at a wildly lower density, mass density. Um, and uh, so that what that means for soft robotics, I think, is extremely important because there's a lot in soft robotics that uses elastomers um, where the, the, the specific stiffness of elastomers is, is some of the poorest specific stiffness figures um, out of any engineering materials that we use. And um, the reason why that's okay is just because they're so useful for things like damping. Um, and there are enough applications where the cost of that weight is relatively low. But when we start to talk about what we might be able to do with soft robotics uh, in high-performance regimes, um, like, for instance, like aircraft, um, it becomes really important to find a way to do this without paying that kind of mass. And um, so this is what we showed. We, we showed glass and carbon fiber-based um, systems uh, with the stiffness of elastomers, but the specific stiffness of the glass and carbon fiber, um, which, which made them, made them ultra light. Um, and then we had this control, this, this ability to control the behavior of the system, um, uh, that was, that was a pretty significant way. And, um, and so that was this project that we call the MADCAT project. Um, and that's an acronym. If you're familiar with NASA, you, you understand that we're, we're very happy about our games, um, uh, for mission adaptive digital composite error structures technologies. Um, and so this was, this was a wing. Um, uh, it was, uh, a mechanical metamaterial. So it was composed entirely out of these cells, which we called voxels for volumetric pixels. Um, and so this gets into the, those terms gets, gets into the reason why we call the digital composites. Um, uh, because this, we put together just like Lego, basically, um, in terms of we have a pile of these <clears throat> and we actually had, um, 
a few different types of them. So you can imagine it as like um, a few different colors of Lego blocks. But in our case, instead of color, well, there was actually a difference in color. But aside from just color, um, our, our voxels, um, the different types of voxels that we had, uh, they varied in mass and stiffness. Um, so we only had a few different types. We only needed a few different types. Um, and uh, so we built these rather like any very large Lego structure that you might um, that you might imagine or might have seen. Um, uh, the difference is that um, the the way these came together, and it was it was actually just with nuts and bolts, uh, very small nuts and bolts. Um, uh, was such that the whole system um, performed extremely well um, in terms of a specific stiffness and uh, and strength, um, and certainly enough to 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 meet an uh, an aircraft application. Um, and uh, with the same process for assembling them, uh, we were able to uh, control their elastic behavior all the way. So. Uh, Everybody who's flown in an airplane um, and looked out the window at the wing has noticed that that wing needs to change shape during flight. Um, and um, uh, that shape change is, is pretty costly um, uh, uh, for, for a, a number of reasons. And, and the way we currently do that shape change um, uh, uh, introduces was some of the cost as well. So right now we have um, uh, rigid control surfaces um, on hinges and sliders uh, that have quite sharp edges uh, uh, that get exposed when they move around. Um, and so it's well known that it would be really nice to get rid of all of that. And um, what would be the the nicest um, would be to have none of that and to have the wings smoothly twist and change shape um, whenever it needs to. And some of that shape change could happen passively. It could happen as a response to, uh, for instance, the airspeed um, that's being controlled by, by the engines um, separately. Um, and so some of these ideas we were able to we were able to show the ability to 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 meet some of these shape change both both active and 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 passive shape change by controlling how wings that we made with these metamaterials bend um, in response to uh, the pressure provided by the speed that they were running at uh, we did this. We did all all of that in in a wind time, um, mm -hmm. and so the the key there's a there's an analogy here with with the different colored Lego, and um, when we're speaking about pixels and voxels, where um, you can think about a digital image, um, which probably the first digital images um, uh, seemed very rudimentary, right? um, but um, you know, if is, you know, you and I are looking at um, if we if we had 
4K screens in front of us, then there's there's more images that can be displayed on that screen than we think there are subatomic particles in the universe. Um, so the power of having the little module of the pixel with just a few different options per pixel, but a lot of pixels, um, is, is really significant in terms of, of what you can then do as a digital image. Um, so for mechanical metamaterials, um, three-dimensional mechanical metamaterials, what we're talking about with the different types of voxels um, is, is the ability to make almost any behavior, um, mechanical behavior, um, uh, achieved by a material um, uh, that is a structure or a structure that is a material. Um, just by the way we arrange those different types of voxels, as long as we have a, enough of them um, to get the kind of resolution we need. I, I want to ask a couple of questions here. Um, it's, you mentioned a lot of interesting points, but let's break them again um, from the beginning when you mentioned about, let's go back to the wing example that we see in the an airplane. So when you transform the traditional design using this actuator or rigid parts to transform the shape to as a dampening or creating system here, the brake. When you think about the design, you, you mentioned um, the, the combination like glass and carpal fiber, just like the mix like that. And then you, you said about how you make sure that you choose the right geometry. It's a condition here to make sure you have right geometry. So I'm curious about the, 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 the design here. You have the goal maybe not the wing, other example if you can mention, how you select the two material, like when you think about the space of the available material, and then you go to choose the right geometry, how, how you make sure that you choose the right geometry, that question. And then you mentioned another interesting point about the manufacture, maybe able to manufacture the, the design. And of course, now we have 3D printing, but you mentioned engine molding, which worked perfect for you. But in general um, perspective, how do you see the state of uh, manufacturing now for such a design, like completely innovative uh, design here? That's a really interesting one because it, it kind of kind of brings you back to the the geometers of antiquity. Um, uh, in that, you know, if you're looking at, if you want to look at um, periodic or, or, or repeating structures, oh, oh of shapes um and uh particularly if you want to be able to to analyze it in a simple way um uh then you start to think about things like okay well um you can you can you can play with the geometry of any of these structures with marshmallows and toothpicks um or just candies and toothpicks and um, uh, so they're made up of, of like vertices and edges. Um, and uh, we could say that with any manufacturing process, we'll probably get um, the best consistency if, uh, if we can keep all the edge lengths the same. Um, uh, and so we start to ask, what are the different 
repeating geometries, what are the different cell shapes, polyhedrons, um, that can be put together to fill space. Um, and, and then, and we can then evaluate for the different ones that we come up with, um, how, what their mechanical performance, um, can be expected to be based on the geometry. Um, uh, a very, very straightforward mechanical analysis based on the, the angles that the, the edges meet at the vertices and, and so forth. And in and among there, you get into like framework rigidity theory, um, for instance, where you can, um, to a first order, we can, you can count the number of edges that are meeting at the nodes or vertices and, and count the number of vertices and, and, and um, get a good idea and be able to make decisions right off the bat as to whether or not you expect um, these shapes um, to be structurally efficient. Um, uh, it turns out there are not that many um, geometries that are, that are really known and well-described. Um, and, uh, so that makes it kind of a fun space to work in when you're looking at, um, uh, for instance, high specific stiffness, many materials, um, cause there's only a few that are known, um, and, um, there are some new ones and you can come up with new ones, um, uh, and, and test them both analytically or in simulation or, or, or physically. So just to clear up this part, you mean like a volumetric mesh annual to see the number of the nodes, like let's say two cell then, just give an example because you mentioned the the nodes and, uh, sorry, the vertices and edges and, and yeah. So the easiest way to think about this probably is to, to start in 2D, right? So if you, oh. if you want to make a cellular structure in 2D, you can think about just making a grid. If you just make a, a grid of vertical and horizontal lines, um, then you have a you have a structure of squares, right? And you have you have a periodic cellular structure that um, is um, composed of vertices that are what we would say are four connected. And you can characterize, you can take the single square with all the connections. Um, we can think of it as partial connections to um, all the squares around it. And and you can do simple mechanical analysis of that, and you can project the results of that analysis onto the behavior of the structure as a whole. So you can think about um, uh, the, so that would be that square with periodic boundary conditions, and you can think about how the stiffness of any one of the edges, both before and after it buckles, um, would result in a stiffness-like behavior um, for a material that was composed of many of these. Um, and then you can do that again for, um, you know, if you, if you drew um, a a lot of parallel lines on the paper um, uh, in three sets at 60 degree angles to each other, 
um, you would have uh, uh, a grid of triangles, right? Um, uh, and you can do that same analysis. Um, and and this is how this is actually how um, material scientists figured out how to analyze natural stochastic cellular materials, where it's not perfectly repeating, um, but they would, in a way, design a cell that represented the average geometry that existed in the firms that they were looking at. Um, and then they could do classical mechanical analysis of how they would expect that cell to respond to to, to forces being placed there and um, project that out to do this dimensional scaling analysis is what they called it to project that out to what the whole material composed of those cells would be. It turns out those methods, um, uh, which have sort of experimentally derived um, uh, constants uh, uh, naturally put into it to, to accommodate the, the true variations that exist in those materials, those methods turn out to be very precise methods for engineered or architected um, metamaterials or cellular cells. Um, because that description of what the average cell is um, is much closer to what the actual average cell is um, than is the case in the kinds of materials that those methods were invented for. Um, for the 2D example, the, it, I think it's it, it can be interesting to people to think all the way out to, you can imagine the triangles being fairly high-performing um, in some sense, and, and then on the other extreme, there's the honeycomb. Um, a bunch of hexadons nested together. And that's very sort of volumetrically efficient, but not very structurally efficient. What do you mean by volumetrically efficient? It's a way of, of filling the page, for instance, if you're, if you're, if you're drawing on the page, um, that will use as few lines as possible. It's, it's, it's a good way to create a structure um, that, is, that is extremely lightweight. So if you if you presume that so if you're making a structure out of candies and toothpicks, if you're making a two D lattice structure, um, uh, the way to fill the most space with the fewest toothpicks and candies um, is is going to be the um, the honeycomb shape. And so we can think about all of this these same problems of volumetric efficiency and structural efficiency in three D as well. Um, and, um, and there it gets interesting. It was thought for a while that there is something like a 3D honeycomb, um, that is, uh, the tetrachytechahedron, uh, that was the three-dimensional analog to the 2D honeycomb. Um, but it turns out that people were able to computationally derive a repeating set of polyhedrons that is not the um that is that is a, a few percent maybe it's just two percent um a little bit more efficient than the 
tetrachidecahedron or um, uh, what's called the Kelvin lattice. Um, and so this this question of for any particular goal for a lattice geometry, um, what geometries are available, um, is interesting enough that one of the ways that people are tackling it is just um, a purely a computational search problems, whether they're trying to evolve them or um, or brute for force their way to new solutions. It's an interesting space, and I, there's 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 a lot of room for new theory. I think to be able to come up with new geometries. I I really like the Spartan actually. The, the connection about, uh, you mentioned about the voxel, and I saw one of your presentation you took about the digital material, and the same thing from the Lego, and and when you say that the vort, yeah, the vortex, for example, or, or, or voxel, sorry, I'm sorry, the voxel that you have some region could be soft and stiff, and there's variation, and I, I'm trying to make the connection with the honeycomb shape because that's also the question about this morphology that you choose a honeycomb. And maybe you choose a circle, and maybe you choose a square, whatever the morphology is, and you arrange them in three D to be more softer and stiffer, and that will create another level of the performance. And you target something. Can you tell me about this arrangement? You choose the morphology, and then you arrange them in a certain way. Maybe arrange them linearly, like like a lattice, or maybe like a ring. You, you see what I mean? How this affects each other? Our our approach has been um, uh, to in terms of the arrangement, um, the the variation that 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 we employ in the arrangement is for every lattice site. Um, so for every point in the th the three dimensional grid, for instance, um, we choose whether or not to put a voxel there. And then if we're going to put a voxel there, we choose which out of a small set of voxels, like three, um, uh, which one we're going to put there. And so in our case, um, we, we are, we're always putting voxels on these discrete lattice sites. Um, in the same way that a digital image has every single pixel in a discrete redefined location. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and I think you get a lot of benefit out of doing that from the manufacturing point of view, because in your manufacturing can be actually extremely simple, um, including the assembly process. And you can use the same process regardless of what the output is going to be. Um, uh, so um for for us um it's just a question of having enough range in voxel types to achieve what you need to achieve um and then um getting the large scale behavior out of the way that you mix those now the sort of the science and art of doing that mixing um is very new um, it can take advantage of a lot of work that's already out there that's not new on topological optimization, 
um, particularly discrete topological optimization. And it's interesting that, you know, discrete topological optimization to a large degree exists, again, as a way of approximating continuous materials. Um, uh, and uh, approximating continuous problems. Um, and um, uh, it's a way to get good results, optimization results, um, when the continuous problem might not be tractable. Um, uh, in our case, discrete topological optimization, which very much existed before we started doing this with these mechanical nanomaterials, um, uh, is, is absolutely appropriate because our systems are discretized. Um, we have these discrete voxels and discrete locations along the system. And we can, we can actually nearly exhaustively test um, our individual voxels very easily. Um, um, and so, one of the one of the approaches we'll, that listeners will be familiar with um, uh, to to doing simulation and analysis is is with what's called finite element analysis. And um, there you are doing essentially what I had described um, for, for lattice material analysis, um, uh, but with some more freedom um, uh, spatially in terms of how you arrange the mechanical things that you um uh the simplexes that you're using uh to essentially approximate the behavior of the material in the place where you're you're putting these things so you have the finite elements in a finite element analysis that you have to distribute throughout the thing that you're analyzing um in our case we literally have finite elements that are well characterized in a regular um, in this case, in this context, we could call it a 3D mesh. And so all of these methods that already exist around the finite element analysis and the topological, the discrete topological optimization um, uh, are, are immediately very useful to us um, for designing um, real systems that, that we can, for instance, assemble and test in the wind tunnel. And so we found through using these methods that already exist, that we had the ability to very quickly and very accurately predict how uh, these kinds of systems can behave. Now, a point about them, you asked about the materials, that uh, yeah. the constituent materials. I think this, this is a, a really fun thing about this. Uh, you know, the, a mattress might be a good example. A, a elastomer material. So you can think about a uh, memory foam mattress, hibiscoelastic foam mattress, and how heavy it is. Um, uh, there, if you've ever had to move one around, um, you, you will know um, how heavy it is. And um, But at the same time, um, uh, it's it's extremely soft. And so you have to ask, if you wanted that 
amount of compliance and you made it out of something like carbon fiber or steel or aluminum or titanium, um, how, how heavy would it really need to be? Um, and the, the answer is, um, it, you, you could probably lift it with a single finger. Um, uh, if it were made out of a material that had much higher specific stiffness and, um, than um, the the material that the the viscoelastic forms are made of. That's not to say that that the the economics work out in terms of what the cost would be um, in the long run. But if if your objective was purely performance to get something that's that's that um, that compliant, um, it is absolutely possible. Um, uh, and they would become something that's very easy to move around. You could probably see uh, mostly straight through it um, because there'd be so little material involved. Um, but you could certainly have the same thickness um, and the same amount of compliance. Um, and through the tuning of the geometry, um, you you um, you could very tightly control um, the the stiffness response curve um very interesting yeah it's very interesting since a cold end i have a few questions maybe the question about the this outer space the material you mentioned beginning that we wanted to make sure it's cheap and also we have the lightweight and all this characteristic but when you speak about the space outer space if there is a like compromise or a trade-off when you think about the material you feel I don't know if that's a case for your part of the project in your lab. Um, yeah, can you tell me about certain situation where it's it's a bit confined, depending on the environment to to combine all this desired functionality to yeah to make yeah like wing, but maybe in different environment, outer space or whatever situation would be. So for the the space applications, um, one of the interesting things about space applications is that um, is that for for most space applications, especially near term ones, um, we don't really have to deal with um, uh, anywhere near the amount of gravity that we have to deal with on the Earth's surface, um, and so. Uh, the reason why that's interesting is that a lot of on-Earth engineering um, deals with a governing constraint that is connected to gravity. Um, uh, and so space applications, um, because of that, um, structures in space just look different. Um, and the way they look different is they're much lighter. Um, and so if you're... Uh, so this is where lightweight materials um, and these questions of um, how stiff something can be for how light it is and um, uh, really what the dynamic modes are um, uh, uh, become so critical. Because for things that are floating out in space, the biggest structural questions are often um 
often have to do with your ability to control it. Um, so if you're a telescope, you need to be able to, to move that telescope to look at the thing you want, and it needs to stay there for long enough for you to, for you to take it in. Um, and you want to be able to do that without spending too much fuel um, or too much energy in general. Um, uh, uh, and so that's exactly a situation where the mass matters um, uh, a, a great deal um, to the problem. And, and so your solutions end up being as light as we can possibly make them. Uh, and so these approaches, even including a mechanical metamaterial approach to making ultralight systems, are, are very interesting enough to me. And, and there we're talking about structures where, um, and this is where some of the challenge in making space systems is, these are structures that are so lightweight you can't even test them on the ground because they would crush themselves. Um, uh, and, and, and this is the case for for um, quite a variety of, of space systems that are that are up there in flight now. Um, that they were never able to be completely tested on the ground because they would be too heavy. Um, so that's where the, some of these lightweight structures um, become really important. Um, and then for for us, the manufacturing is uh, is a really interesting problem, particularly in space, as we start to think about being able to um, get materials from space to use um, to build systems for exploration in space. Uh, so being able to do that efficiently um, is a reason why we've gone in this direction of developing um, uh, robotic systems uh, to assemble these, these, these structures that are materials. Um, and as, a, as far as a robot problem is concerned, we think it's a really nice one. Um, so if you're going to make uh, an aircraft out of a lot of little voxels, um, uh, you have this situation where, you know, commercial aircraft today take on the order of several million components, um, to manufacture. Um, uh, Around half of that, so still a few million components, was just fascinating. Um, and there are certainly more than a million unique parts, part designs, uh, uh, that are a part of the, the remaining components that are about fascinating. Um, and here we're talking about trying to make systems at the same scale of complexity but with vastly fewer different types of parts um, and most of which connect to each other in basically the same way now, what does that mean in terms of a manufacturing problem that means that um, the total number of parts 
might not actually be that much more. Um, but the number of types of parts is orders of magnitude fewer. And the number of types of operations that need to be done is orders of magnitude fewer, um, which is perfect for a robotics problem. Now, we add to that the fact that the environment that the robots are working in are highly structured, then it, it's perfect for robots as, as, as they are now. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of focus um, in industry and academia on the other side of the problem, which is um, general purpose robots for unstructured environments. The problem that we're focused on is instead specialized and therefore extremely inexpensive robots for a highly structured environment. And so the highly structured environment here is the structure that is a material that is essentially like a three-dimensional grid that the robot just needs to be able to ratchet through. And so these are the robots that come in, in the paper, which is... Um, that was recently released uh, in science robotics. Um, uh, and so we think that this can be an extremely efficient way to build, can maintain, and reconfigure large-scale high-performance structural systems. Um, uh, and we, we have, we've been focusing on, on a number of different potential applications in space, particularly on the moon's surface. Um, uh, and in general, um, we think that there's incredible potential. Um, you know, it, I don't need, need to undermine the um, the the work on general-purpose robots for unstructured environments. It is a very hard problem, that one. Um, if we go towards, also, towards these kinds of robots where each robot can just do one or two things, but do it extremely well, um, then there's the question of how well that scales. Um, and, and we think what it does for you is it allows you to push a lot of the complexity of any given problem onto the computing, onto the algorithms, onto the mathematics, um, and away from the mechanisms and the hardware. Um, and what that does is it relies on the fact that these robots that only need to do a couple things, but can do them extremely well, are so much cheaper that you can have a lot of them, like even hundreds of them, for the same cost as a single general purpose robot. And if you can coordinate all of these simple robots, um, you'll have a much more robust system that can, in the end, do accomplish more different kinds of things than the, the general purpose robot could. This is a really excellent point. Um, I appreciate hearing this. Um, um, maybe the final question in terms of closing. What, what do you think maybe the next thing? Or, or, or maybe because you 
you have this perspective from academia and also from NASA here. What, what do you think the missing piece is like mixing or um, maybe the thing that maybe need much more focus or attention in that space of the design of the metamaterial here? Well, I, I think that the thing that we're coming to is, um, is that we should be considering these systems of metamaterials and robots all together as a robot. Um, because we've shown that the metamaterials themselves um, is that's a strategy for making things that are mechanisms like making an airplane wing that is the mechanism itself um, for doing the shape change that gives you your controls. Um, and when we talk about the space applications um, and this potential ability to, to meet the all of these um, different individual applications that we can think of for for infrastructure in orbit or on the moon's surface, um, together with the robots that could assemble them or reconfigure them and maintain them, um, that gives us an ability that stretches across um, across what we normally think of as a single mission uh, today. So um, that's a really important, I think, change in the way we think about space exploration. Um, and it's an important change in the way that we can think about uh, infrastructure as well. Um, that's even true of things like highway bridges. Um, so right now, something like a highway bridge um, we, if we can build the capital to install a highway bridge, we do that, and then that highway bridge will expire in something like 50 years. And you just have to hope that in 50 years, uh, someone will be able to put together the capital to replace that bridge. Um, but this isn't always the way we thought about engineered systems. And there's an old thought experiment called the ship of Theseus where you, if you had a boat, you would repair the boat. And it could be by replacing a, a rotten plank. At some point, you will have replaced all of the, the planks on the boat. There won't be a single piece of anything in the boat, perhaps, um, that was there when you when when the boat was there. Uh, and and the question is, is it still the same boat? Um, well, if you or I or any of your listeners are still the same person they were ten years ago, then the answer is yes. Um, and there's no reason why our engineered infrastructure um, can't follow similar principles 
and these metamaterials and um, coordinated distributed robotics, um, we think are a way to achieve that, where you could install a highway bridge that could be maintained in service by the robots, where if there's a problem with any single component, it can be replaced um, without taking the bridge out of service. And over the course of 50 years, there might not be a single component in that bridge that was the same as when that bridge was first built. Um, uh, but you won't have had to take it out of service, and it's not any worse off than it was when the day you built it. Um, and you can just keep maintaining it as long as, long as it meets your needs. And if it doesn't meet your needs, you can move those materials elsewhere. Or, um, or grow the system by adding more materials. Um, and that kind of approach to infrastructure is something that we will, that we are, we are trying to achieve for space applications, um, but that we think will be really, really valuable um, for Earth applications, like high-performance bridges. Do you think about the um, unidentified uh, flying phenomena, UAVs, for example, or UFOs? I don't know if there's something when you saw the something defying the physics length. Well, I think there's 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 a lot of information out there on. Um, well, I, I I like mysteries personally. There's a lot of information out there. I would like to believe that we, you know, um, uh, that. Um, Aliens have made contact, but I, I don't personally believe that there's evidence of that. But that's not um, there's um, there's the ratio of the number of times that the questions have been raised and um, the number of times those questions have been answered um, uh, to to show that there's reasonable non-alien explanations. Um, for what people have observed, um, seems to be very much in the favor of uh, uh, us not having been visited by aliens. But um, I don't know what 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 NASA's official position on that is. That's outside of my um, yeah. my my expertise on that. But I uh, I suspect because it's so clear. Um, that, that, that is the case. It's, it's one of these things where, um, aliens, uh, are, are a good way to explain something that you just don't understand. Um, and it's a good way to stop trying to explain it. Um, but I, I, I think you get a lot out of, out of continuing to ask questions, um, until you reach an explanation that is final. It seems um seems like a little bit of a giving up to say that something is you know, has come from aliens.